This is episode one of The Flock's Given, and my name is Josh. And my name's Alyssa. So being the uh, very first episode, kind of wanted to start it out with a rundown of what the intent and what the ideas here would be for the show. So basically we're looking to uh, release bi-weekly episodes, somewhere between 30 to 60 minutes per episode. And the uh, focus is going to be more on the the stories than the science or identification parts of it. Uh, it's going to hold hands with that. Those parts are very important. Uh, and, and really, the stories kind of depend on that. But it's going to be more of a, a focus on the stories. And uh, that kind of makes it more, it's a little less, less clinical, a little less dry and sterile. It's, um, you know, just going to be hopefully a, a little more more fun going into those stories a bit more. Well, you know, not only more fun, but I think that those stories are so important to tell too. So I will be very honest when I say that I have never considered myself a bird person. And, and of course you, you have always been what I call a bird guy, right? And over time you would be telling me all sorts of fun, interesting, maybe surprising facts or stories you know, about birds. And then suddenly, you know, when I'm walking the dog, I'm finding myself looking to the sky. Uh, suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm looking at birds and wondering, like, what is the story there? So it, it's interesting the way that it went from birds are going from a thing that I'm overlooking to something that I'm taking an extra interest into now. So this podcast is intended to tell the story of birds through a different lens that you you might not be familiar with. Yeah, it's like, uh, I think a good example of this, and, and even if it's not really bird-related per se, think about uh, Dolly, the clone sheep. Everybody's kind of vaguely familiar with, with Dolly, uh, but what uh, kind of the backstory of how it got named uh, is when they cloned her, she was taken from a, uh, a mammary gland. So after they did that, they were thinking what, what they're going to name this, uh, this, this new sheep. And uh, they came up with the name Dolly uh, with, with Dolly Parton's obvious connections to, uh, to the mammaries. <laughs> so it's uh, one of those things people don't really realize the, the humor or the fun that's also contained in this. So that's kind of, you know, kind of the, the want is to uh, bring that to the forefront here. Awesome. Well, should we get into it? Yes. All right. Let's tell them a story. All right, so this episode is going to be about the whooping crane and uh, the the conservation ep- efforts that have kind of gone along with that. Um, there is a crazy amount of backstory with this bird in uh, trying to increase its populations. Um, it is one of the most uh, endangered among the cranes um, and one of only two cranes that are native here to the U.S., or I, I should say North America. Uh, the, the Latin word... Uh, for the whooping crane is the Gruss Americana, which is awesome. I like it. I listened to uh, Bruce Springsteen and uh, John Mellencamp all morning in uh, in preparation to this because I was really excited about that name. Um, so yeah, one of uh, one of the two North American cranes, fifteen uh, crane species uh, worldwide, but only two of them exists here in North America. It's uh, the tallest of the cranes, uh, about five feet in height. Uh, seven to eight foot wingspan so it's a uh, fairly large bird um, and I think there are birds with um, similar larger wingspans but I think uh, height it was the uh, was the tallest that we have uh, here 
That's standing out to me. Did you, did you say five feet tall? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's wild. That Almost a little terrifying, but very interesting. All right, go on. Your grandma's not even that tall. <laughs> So um, that's the rough size uh, population. The um, there's been uh, it's kind of hard to uh, narrow down exact numbers on this. Kept getting uh, uh, different information on it. Um, the I was able to find something from the University of Vermont that uh, gave uh, population estimates in the mid 1800s around 1,500 birds. Uh, but in the uh, 40s, and this is where it kind of gets tricky, and I got some uh, some differing numbers. But in the 40s is when it seemed to uh, hit its uh, hit its lowest spot as far as population. Um, 18 seemed to be the general consensus of what it got down to. Uh, but I saw some reports saying it had gone down to um, as as little as 15, and then others saying uh, it had gotten down to uh, 21 existing cranes in the wild. And uh, again, it, it kind of varied as to which year, uh, 1941 and 1943 seem to be the two years that it had the, uh, the lowest numbers in the wild. Um, so with that, uh, and I did see another one that estimated in the 1800s uh, that its population was closer to 3,000. So that's uh, a wide range. Well, it's a wide range, but either way, you're painting a pretty dire picture of, I mean, if you say anywhere from... Yeah, 15 at its lowest to, to 3,000. The picture that you're painting is, is not a uh, pretty one for the species. No, not at all. And it kind of uh, reflects the focus that uh, that we kind of had at the country, too. Back in the 1800s, nobody was uh, taking the time to count birds. You know, it was very, very agricultural-based. And uh, we were basically expanding west. Um, you know, so kind of all work, no play. And uh, little regards to uh, really anything that stood in its way, whether it be birds or people, unfortunately. But that's kind of the the way we rolled back then. So um, one of the things that happened in the uh, 50s uh, that kind of helped to uh, shine some light on this, the, um, the largest, uh, largest flock of birds in the wild, um, at least with the whooping cranes, have a um, have a, a winter range in Canada. Um, a, a big big refuge for them is the uh, Wood Buffalo Park in Canada. It's a national park up there. And in 1954, um, there was a wildfire that had occurred in the park. And um, with the uh, the firefighters coming in, they were able to spot from the plane that uh, there were these two. Two cranes in the park, and uh, prior to that, they didn't really know where they uh, where they bred, where they wintered. Um, so this kind of uh, was able to shine some light as to at least where they were, where their breeding grounds were. So um, that happened in 1954. Um, you know, and with that, they could really focus more on learning about the bird, taking some of the eggs into uh, into captivity, so they could uh, could rear the the chicks that way. And uh, there was a lot of trial and error uh, through this time. And uh, up until the 1980s, they hadn't really figured out a way to um, rear the chicks without, um, without the, the chicks actually in, or, uh, imprinting on humans. So what would happen is, or the, the kind of the goal here, was for the uh, chicks to uh, be 
born in captivity, and then from there they would uh, basically be reintroduced at a later stage to uh, wild populations. Uh, but what was happening is these birds were uh, imprinting on the, uh, the humans. So basically what was happening is after the chicks hatched, they would see, uh, see this scientist guy, and uh, rather than having any interest in, um, you know, in natural populations or other cranes, it would basically follow the scientist guy around and uh, almost like a, a lost dog. <laughs> That's it's kind of, it's it's very sad, but also the, at the same time, it, you're painting kind of a, a funny picture. I'm just imagining a little baby crane, like, all right, now it's my time to do my computer work. Uh, but that's 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 really interesting to to know that um, it, based on the, the so is it's the first is is the first person that the crane is interacting with that they're imprinting on, basically. Yeah, basically. So it sees this person and um, basically just kind of kind of follows him around. You know, and I, I don't know that they uh, think the bird is a uh, parent per se, but, um, you know, basically they, they see it as a guardian. Hmm. And, um, you know, it really makes any sort of uh, reintroduction to the wild populations part. So hmm. uh, what it actually eventually led to is that uh, they figured out a way to make these... Uh, these suits, uh, these white suits that kind of look like a, um, the, the people that work on beehives, you know, they wear the white mask, right. like the mesh over their face, uh, the big, big nets. Kind of looks similar to that. And the idea is, um, oh, and, and, you know, they also have a uh, puppet on the end of their hand that looks just like the sandhill crane. So you got the white, and then you got a little bit of the red plumage on the head. And um, the idea is that way it thinks it's um, imprinting on the crane instead of uh, the, the actual human that it's imprinting on. So I want to know who the guy is, who the scientist is, who came up with this idea. He's like, all right, I'm going to put a puppet on my hand. I'm going to wear a white gown. And this is how we're going to avoid that imprinting uh, situation. I want to hear that conversation between these scientists and how that uh, idea was initially received. That's really interesting. Right, like were these guys seamstresses in their past <laughs> life or how'd they learn this? That was in the 80s they were figuring this out as far as um, you know stopping the imprinting. Around this time the populations were coming back up so that was that was good. The the population as it stands now has uh, it's still alarming. These uh, birds are considered endangered still, uh, but now from that low that was in the uh, high teens, low twenties, uh, now there's an estimated eight hundred and thirty six of the uh, cranes, uh, of the whooping cranes specifically, uh, seven hundred and two in the wild, hundred and thirty four in captivity, and uh, this fluctuates a little bit from year to year. Uh, one thing that was interesting about the, the current birds, uh, or the current population, is that they are all descendants from the uh, population that migrates from Texas to Canada, to that, that Wood Buffalo Park. There were some other um, smaller groups. There was one in Louisiana that uh, had um, initially died off. There's been some reintroduction efforts there as well. Uh, but I believe the ones that nowadays exist in Louisiana don't migrate. Uh, they just stay there year round, which is similar to what the uh, original population in Louisiana did as well. They weren't migratory either, uh, but the original population has since died off. So um, the 
Right now, there's two main flocks. There's a uh, western flock and an eastern migratory flock. The, uh, the western flock, again, is that one that goes from uh, Canada to the, the Gulf of Mexico and Texas. That uh, The western one is a larger one, uh, roughly 543 birds. Um, it is the only one that's completely self-sustaining. So, um, and what will often happen is during their migratory flights, they uh, team up with the uh, sandhill cranes and follow a very similar path. And um, the, so they winter in Canada, or no, I'm sorry, they winter in Texas, breed in uh, Canada. And uh, one thing that was, I found very cool about this uh, migratory path is they, uh, they've been having the same path for, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And um, it actually goes along the uh, Platte River in Nebraska. And um, the, there's one thing called the uh, pinch of the hourglass, where it kind of, uh, you have a wider range both in Canada and in Texas that they, they kind of exist in. Uh, but when they uh, are migrating, they actually kind of funnel in over the Platte River. So it's uh, kind of funnels down to where there's, you know, it, for the Sandhills, it's uh, thousands of birds that go over the, um, go over the Platte River. But the, um, the whooping cranes, just with the smaller numbers, you'll still see the largest concentration of whooping cranes at really any point. But... Uh, you know, it's still still smaller numbers since, you know, again, there's only 543 in this flock. That's pretty amazing. And so when, when I would go to, I'm sorry, Nebraska? Yeah, Nebraska, Platte River. It's a uh, river that runs roughly north-south in Nebraska. And uh, I think it's pretty much central, uh, central Nebraska. And what time, and what, when would be the time that you would go if you wanted to see this? So that would be the, the spring. Uh, so I believe it's like the last few weeks in March, uh, up to the first week or two then of April. Interesting. So there is also then a, uh, eastern, uh, an eastern migratory flock. This flock uh, goes from Wisconsin all the way down to uh, Florida. And this one is uh, much smaller, uh, about 76 members in this flock. Uh, but this one is also the one that has uh, much more of an interesting, uh, interesting backstory to it. All of the 76 birds of this uh, eastern migratory flock um, originally were uh, captive, captive uh, bred birds. Uh, they were able to kind of... Um, Introduce them with sandhill cranes to uh, kind of show them some, uh, or you know, to kind of learn some knowledge. So the other larger population, or the other other um, flock, main flock that's uh, part of this story, is the Easter migration flock. Um, so current numbers put this flock at about seventy-six birds. Uh, of this seventy-six, uh, eighteen of them have been uh, wild, wild patched. Uh, while well, the rest have been captive reared. Um, originally speaking, all the numbers of this flock uh, were were born in captivity. Uh, it's the the project's been going on long enough. They've had some success with um, you know babies born or chicks born in the uh, wild being uh, uh, successfully reared and reaching adulthood. Um, but seventy six is the total. You know, and only eighteen of those have been uh, success stories as far as being being um, reared by the, by the proper parents. 
So this uh, this flock winters in Florida, and then its uh, breeding grounds are in Wisconsin. Um, they kind of go into Michigan a little bit as well, uh, but um, you know, largely it's been been uh, Wisconsin for the breeding grounds, and then Florida for the wintering grounds. Uh, this flock has been considered experimental, um, you know, again because it's it's reintroducing flight paths that these birds haven't necessarily um, uh, been had had ingrained in them naturally. Um, so basically, how they they taught these birds the route is they actually utilize ultralight airplanes. Um, in the early two thousands, they had a, a bunch of pilots. Um, you know, and they had to have a, a substantial or a large enough number to uh, to do this with. But uh, they basically had um, taught the birds to uh, follow these ultralight aircrafts, and um, they uh, they would actually bring the birds or like chaperone them uh, down to Florida. They break it up into chunks where they were only doing. I can't remember what the exact mileage was, but uh, it would be over a, a week span that they'd be uh, following these planes. That's absolutely bonkers. The idea, again, is this is this the same group that came up with the kind of using the puppet on the hand uh, with, that's the same group that's doing this? Yeah, same group. It's the uh, International Crane Foundation uh, was kind of the one that came up with the, uh, came up with the idea. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been the same group. Um, well, congratulations to this group for being so in, uh, innovative and creative and and seeing success in, in this. This is this is the part of the story that I think is wild. These these scientists who are like, why don't we try this insane idea? And then seeing it it work, or I'm going to assume it works. You'll tell me a little bit more about that. But it's just really really interesting. And, and I again another instance of I love to hear the conversation being between like the scientists be like, well, why don't I just get out one of these ultralight airplanes and they'll just follow me? That That's crazy. Right. I want to know if the guy had a, uh, had a uh, pilot's license originally and he, uh, you know, was like, hey, I have this crazy idea or if it's something he uh, decided to get, you know, after, <laughs> after they thought about it and brainstormed a little bit. It's like, oh, hell, I'll just go get a, go get a pilot's license so that way we can make this possible. Or did, or did he call up a pilot and be like, look, I got, <laughs> I've got a scenario for you. I got this crazy pipe dream and <laughs> see if it works. <laughs> but uh, you can find videos online, too, of um, the, uh, the the chicks. They're not chicks. I guess they're more fledglings, like I guess you would call them. Uh, but these young birds uh, following, these, um, following these ultralights. And uh, at first, they just do like little, you know, little little ground flights, and uh, they they look so dumb. They're just like they're they're brown, and they look like idiots, kind of hopping behind this plane, like they don't know what's going on. Um, you know, you can find these on on uh, on YouTube. I know uh, National Geographic has a video, and then uh, also uh, the uh, International Crane Foundation also has videos of this too. Uh, but very very fun to see. Um, so that was in the early 2000s that they uh, that they uh, started this, um, and it, it had success. Uh, so now there was a uh, there's a uh, Siberian crane that uh, exists in Russia uh, that they've tried uh, imitating basically the same same idea to kind of use the ultralight planes to uh, teach migration patterns. Um, 
you know, also something too with this International Crane Foundation. Um, we live in Wisconsin. You know, we've both been here a while. And, and for the longest time, I had no clue this was something right here in our backyard. You know, and it's something that, um, you know, I think the, you know, everybody knows about global warming and the, and the larger con or our conversation or conservation pictures. Um, but nobody really kind of gets into these these small organizations that are really taking hands-on approaches. And um, it's, uh, you know, something I didn't know was right here in our backyard, and I thought that was pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, it, the idea, yes, it's, it's right here in our backyard here in Wisconsin, and it's also very interesting to see the very innovative approach that they're taking now being used, uh, you know, in all, all over the world to save, who knows, maybe even more species. It's, it's, uh, something they should be very proud of. Wow. Yeah, for sure. So also wanted to kind of talk about Sandhill cranes, um, a little bit because it's, they play, uh, an important role in this too. They're kind of a, kind of an ally bird here. And, um, you know, I mentioned that uh, closer to the top here that we have two crane species here in the in the North America, um, you know, one being the whooping crane, the other being the sandhill crane. The oddly enough, the whooping crane is considered to be one of the more endangered cranes, uh, whereas the sandhill crane is actually one of the one of the more robust populations among all the cranes. Um, so they really sought to uh, use the sandhills kind of as like a um, uh, almost like a teacher or a mentor crane, um, you know, and, and also because there are some uh, migration routes that really coincide with what the whooping cranes have, have used in the past. Um, so that's, um, you know, with the sandhill cranes, they say there's about roughly 800,000 cranes um, in the wild. And uh, one thing also I found that they had, uh, they were able to find in near the Platte River because there's the, another crane that uses that uh, pinch of the hourglass that goes over the Platte River. Uh, in Nebraska, they actually found a uh, fossil of a uh, sandhill crane going back 7 million years. And uh, when you think about that, they say humans have been around roughly 200,000. Uh, there were some uh, previous variants of humans uh, that go back at, at most 2 million years. Uh, but with the Sandhill Crane, largely unchanged. You're talking 7 million years. Wow. Which is insane. Yeah. So the Sandhill Cranes have been a, a wonderful ally with the uh, whooping cranes. Uh, but there have been some issues uh, with these birds kind of commingling. Um one is the idea of uh, these hybrids that can happen if uh, a whooping crane and a sandhill crane mate. Um, what will happen if they do make a, uh, a hybrid bird? Uh, they're called, uh, the, the technical name is the whooping hill crane, but uh, they're also called whoopsies as well. And hybrids happen in the, uh, bird, or in the bird world, and it's usually not... The worst thing, um, you know, it, what usually happens, you end up having a sterile bird, uh, one that also might have some uh, bird defects. So usually the birds don't have as long of a life expectancy, uh, which is, is sad, you know, and I don't want to say a bird is expendable, but when you have healthy populations, um, a bird only, you know, making it uh, 
75% of its, you know, average age span, not as large of a concern. Uh, but when you're talking only having 800 birds, you know, every, every bird itself is integral at that point. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big deal at that point. That's, that's very, oof, wow. Now, the uh, International Crane Foundation uh, itself had an issue with this. Uh, they had a, um, uh, a whooping crane, uh, known as 1611, with its, its scientific number. Uh, but they had called him Grasshopper. And um, what it was, it was a uh, male whooping crane uh, that was released at the uh, Horicon National Wildlife Refuge. Um, so as it's, uh, it was a young male when it was first introduced, and uh, when he finally got into his um, breeding age, uh, basically all the whooping cranes were spoken for at this point. Uh, so he had fallen in love with a sandhill crane. And uh, as a result, they mated. Uh, the next year, they ended up having a, um, a, a baby that was a hybrid. So one of these, one of these whoopsies. The uh, dilemma here was the, um, the the baby, the chick. They didn't really want to reintroduce him back into the wild. They were worried about uh, whether or not he would survive. If they uh, kept him in captivity, they could still kind of use him as a surrogate or as like a, a teacher for for other chicks as they uh, as they were born. So this caused quite a bit of concern as far as uh, the the whoopsie, if you will. Um, so basically, it, it creates a problem in that, like uh, a couple ethical concerns, in that with um, you know they decided to bring the uh, the the chick back into captivity. And then with uh, cranes being monogamous, you also had the issue with uh, 1611 and what to do with him. Uh, so the, the concern here was since cranes are monogamous, um, it, the, the 1611 is essentially going to keep mating with the Sandhill crane. And uh, it's just going to create, uh, you know, potentially repeat, repeat of the same issue moving forward. So... Uh, they got quite a bit of drawback for this. The International Crane Foundation did. They got a lot of kickback for this, but uh, they essentially uh, decided to bring 1611 back into captivity and uh, hold on to him for a, a year and then uh, reintroduce him back into the wild in Florida this time. Oh, no, you're telling me. And, and I, I'm going to shout out to the Crane Association again. Love them. But you're telling me that... They separated 1611 from his, the, you, the, his monogamous his, mate. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's. They broke up a marriage. Yeah. They broke up a bird marriage. Wow. <laughs> Bastards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is, uh, I understand. I, my brain understands. My heart does not. That's so sad for 1611. Yeah. Oh. Well, so sad for the mate. Too, yeah. You know, oh. like, she thought she was a perfect bride. Homewreckers. This is what they home are. Record. They're a bunch yeah. of homewreckers. This was a family. <laughs> but it was just met in a motel room. <laughs> so it, they got a lot of kickback. People thought, you know, that maybe they were playing God a little bit here. Um, but, I mean, really, you know, if, if you're saying saying playing God, there's a lot here where there's kind of a 
stepping into uh, into these situations. And for the most part, it's good. You, you have, I mean, not that you want to, to play God, but, um, you know, sometimes for the, the better good, it's required. Um, but, but basically, yeah, they reintroduced 1611 in the, back into Florida this time. And uh, he actually successfully found a, um, a whooping crane to mate with there. Oh, he just moved on. He moved mm-hmm. on. Yep, okay. yep. So much for monogamy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this, this new pairing then was 1611. Um, in, in 2018, um, he, he was able to successfully mate with a, uh, an actual whooping crane this time. And uh, in... So they had two chicks, and then in 2018, they were uh, sighted back in Wisconsin. So they originally hatched up in Wisconsin. Uh, they captured them in Florida, you know, when they when they broke up the marriage, and then reintroduced him in Florida, where he found the mate, and then you know came back to Wisconsin. Then in in August of 2018. Wait, stop! I'm sorry. So you're telling me now. That 1611, he took his side piece back to Wisconsin, where his original wife was. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wisconsin's not the biggest state, but it's not the smallest either, you know. So maybe maybe one's in Milwaukee, the other's in Madison. Who knows? Yeah, well, okay. You know, hopefully everybody just moved on amicably. Sorry, go on, go on. Last thing you need is a, a spousal death when you're talking about uh, an endangered species. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a that's a story of 1611. Um, pretty pretty interesting thing, and the you know I think I had kind of mentioned that uh, there was a uh, another incident in the 90s uh, where there was a, uh, a hybrid that had occurred, and this one was in Idaho. Um, and, you know, unfortunately in that situation, the, uh, the chick died pretty much right away and I wasn't really able to find anything on the parents, um, you know, of, of, of that, uh, hybrid. Um, so I, I'm not sure what the story was there, but, um, you know, hope I have, you know, again, with it being a monogamous relationship, I don't know if they anticipated or had further issues with, that bird mating, you know, again with uh, cross species like that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And one thing I guess I didn't expect, um, you know, going through this story is kind of those ethical problems to come up um, like that. And I, and I absolutely see both. Uh, well, <laughs> I've already declared that <laughs> I thought it was terrible for them to rip up their marriage. But yeah, it actually, like very seriously, it, it is interesting when you think about the ethics that go along with all of that and those are not easy decisions to make and i just had kind of had no idea that that that's just fascinating yeah for sure you know it kind of brings brings to light that the world's kind of a, a great place and these these ethical concerns um you know it's you know there, there are certain ethical absolutes uh but um you know, sometimes there's a lot of a lot of gray areas you need to navigate around, and um, you know, de- deciding which, you know, maybe lesser of two evils, or deciding these types of, of things uh, takes a lot of thought, um, you know, and a lot of a lot of concern. And hopefully, it's it's you know the the end goal is well founded, and then you know people are doing things for the right reasons, um, and that that's what those choices are based off of, but. 
I would say very clearly just, I mean, from, from what you're telling me here, that it looks like it was, I'm sorry, was it the the Crane Society? Uh, yeah, the International Crane Foundation. The International Crane Foundation. My apologies for calling you homewreckers because that is not the, that's not a decision that, that I would want to make myself. Um, but I also think that, you know, knowing knowing everything that these foundations have done, I would feel pretty confident that they're doing what is going to be best for the species. Yeah, for sure. Definitely the, the hearts seem to be in the right place. But uh, that's that's about it. That's what uh, what I had here for the uh, whooping cranes and uh, kind of some of the, uh, the the conservation stories that go along with that. I also wanted to mention uh, that uh, the flocks given is on Instagram, and uh, also opened up a uh, PO box specifically for this. I uh, was hoping to hear back from people, uh, good, bad things we missed, things that were right. Um, you know, just, just even to interact on, on, you know, some of these topics or birds in general, I uh, would love to hear from you guys. Um, the, the Instagram is just the flocks given and then the, uh, PO box, uh, is PO box number one, four, five in Lena, Wisconsin. That's L E N A Wisconsin five, four, one, three, nine. Now, being the uh, first show, we don't have some silly little slogan slap at the end of it here. Uh, maybe we should come up with one. Maybe we shouldn't. But uh, <laughs> should we just start making bird noises? <laughs> Caw. No, Caw. Okay. Okay. No. That's a no. <laughs> All right. We're gonna workshop that one for you. Um, go ahead. Make sure to uh, like, follow, and subscribe wherever you are listening right now. That really does help us. Uh, grow and hopefully grow an audience and uh, we hope to be back with you soon with another fascinating tale and um, we hope to see you next time have a good day